All right, so today we are continuing our series called Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel Series. You will see the eight elements listed under Roman numeral one. Uh, we are on element six, and this is actually element six, the letter V. Uh, however many that adds up to, I think 22. Um, and last week, I had hoped to do one week on, but it's at least going to be two. Hopefully it won't go into three on the subject of sin. Last week I focused on the Catholic doctrine called original sin. Today I'm going to focus on the Reformation doctrine called total depravity and hopefully get to the modern evangelical doctrine of sin called the sin nature. So um, you can see in Roman numerals 2, 3, and 4 uh, some overview of what we've done up till now. The the main verse for element six is, but to all the who did receive him, he, the, who believed in his name, he gave them the exousia, or the right and the, the power and the authority to become children of God. And uh, so we've been talking about what it means to, re, to, to uh, receive Christ. So today, uh, I'm just going to quickly review original sin from last week. Uh, so that's Roman numeral six on your page. Now... Uh, Lots of guys that are in their 20s are still struggling with, like, growing up issues concerning, like, uh, gee, I always wanted to be a professional sports athlete, and that's not actually realistic. i got to quit, give those dreams up and move on. Or famous musician, that's not going to happen. So I'm a, you know, deep down inside, I wish I was a real scholar sometimes. <laughs> and uh, um, maybe could have been a professor or something. But uh, this is actually a subject that I'm, the, probably the only subject that I'm probably one of the world's leading experts on, sin. I have a lot of experience in this area. And uh, so hopefully uh, this will be useful to us. So um, some of the things I want to make sure we are... Um, understanding is that like so many topics today the the concept of sin is often very misunderstood it's often looked at way too shallow uh, it's focused on wrong issues and it's misapplied and misplaced uh, in various modern manifestations of Christianity um, the other thing that I want to make sure we understand is that becoming fully convicted of sin is a key to overcoming our contemporary compromise complacency. And the reason for that is Jesus said, whoever's been forgiven much loves much. If you really understand sin, you'll realize that you've been forgiven much. And 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. Anyone who's not really passionate for God, who's not on fire for God, is still pretty much a self-righteous pig. <laughs> Or prig, I meant to say, but you're, you're, in other words, you're shallow. If you're not zealous for God, it's because you've never really come under a very deep conviction of who you really are in God and how much you desperately need to be rescued by grace. When you've been rescued and when, you're, when you realize how much you've been res rescued, you will be overflowing with love for God and thankfulness and abounding in, in, in the zeal for God because you realize that uh, he bought you with a price. Um, I love the scene in the, the remake of the County, Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, doesn't that have Jim Caviezel in it? Yeah. 
Yeah, that, uh, and uh, boy, I wish I could remember the, 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 the one actor has become famous who's, I don't know if he's kind of Spanish or, what is it? Yeah, Juan Guzman. And there's that whole scene where I think uh, um, um, the Count of Monte Cristo, who, Jim Caviezel, and, and Juan Guzman are fighting, and he basically beats him, and he's got his sword in his throat, and uh, he, Juan Guzman is, well, come on, finish it. And Jim Caviezel decides to have mercy on him. And then Juan Guzman spends the rest of the movie, indeed the rest of his life, is implied, uh, serving uh, Jim Caviezel, and, and really... Even at times when Jim, Cavie, Jim Caviezel's misguided or whatever, it's Juan Guzman who loves him enough to speak truth and reality to him. And it's, that's, it's such a powerful uh, metaphor for the gospel because if you really begin to understand sin, you'll begin to understand that life, sin, Satan, the world system, had you down with a sword in your, at your throat. And what God did in Christ is uh, not only, you know, you, you can use, he's, he gave you your life back. Uh, worse than that, you were dead, and he resurrected you. And uh, so this getting a handle on sin and, and crying out to God to help me see myself as a sinner is one of the healthiest things you can do for yourself psychologically. You will grow up, you will be mature, you will be zealous, you will be holy, you, you will be radical for Christ if you really understand the depths of sin. You, you cannot bear fruit much as a Christian until you begin to, to trace down every last root of self-righteousness and, and, um, and self-justification and self-rationalization and you just uh, aren't defending who you are anymore. You've totally surrendered to, to the revelation of God that you're totally depraved. So with that, let's get into uh, the Catholic doctrine. Uh, of course, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all else uh, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, only God. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that it's the, the word of God that reveals our thoughts and motives to us. 1 John 3.4 says, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. We were, uh, by nature, lawless, doing our own thing and hiding from the presence of God. The Catholic doctrine of original sin, which started with, uh, to be developed, of course, it uh, comes from the letters of Paul primarily and other and, the Psalms of David, the penitential Psalms, and other places, Isaiah 59. There's lots about Isaiah 1. There's lots about sin in the Bible. But the idea began to be developed that sin is something you're born with. That is very clearly taught all through the Bible. Uh, you inherited Adam's sin. The problem is, is that in modern Catholicism, it has tended to gravitate toward a very shallow understanding that you were born with some kind of stain or blemish on your soul and that that's removed in water baptism. And, and uh, it's a doctrine that we call baptismal regeneration, that you were made a new creature in your water baptism. And infant baptism is godly and important, as John has defended in a couple of our podcasts. 
but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't provide for baptismal regeneration. You still must be born again. You must be converted to Christ. And after you're born again and converted to Christ, for the rest of this life, sin will be technically dead, but you, by the grace of God and by the delivery systems and tools of grace, the means of grace that he's provided, need to uh, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus every moment of every day. Like the song we sing, I need you every hour. So, um, you know, if you start looking at original sin as just some black mark that gets erased, um, that leads to all kind of wrong, wrong ideas and wrong doctrines that we, the performance-based things, indulgences, and all kind of things that we talked about last week. So flip over and let's get into this week's material. Today, I want to uh, continue talking about sin and hopefully cover, cover total depravity and sin nature. Um, what we're trying to do is go from the reduced definition of sin in our day toward a more complete and more complex uh, understanding of sin. Um, so here are some uh, review of scriptures. Romans 5.20 says that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So again, the more you see your sin, the more you can receive grace. You can't really receive grace except in the posture of humility and desperate need, which you can't get to till you see the depth of your sin. The more you see the depth of your sin, the more you'll rely totally on God's grace. That has to be more than an intellectual transaction. God has to work that into your experience in the fabric of your being and who you see yourself to be before God. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Uh, I wish I had time to get into Psalm 32. I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me blessed is he whose sin is forgiven and so forth when i kept silent about my sin my body wasted away that has to do with the whole stuff you know because the, the number one you know the, the the beatitudes start with blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven that's the first beatitude and poor poverty of spirit starts with god convicting you by the holy spirit john 16 7 and by the word of God, Hebrews 4, 12, 1 Peter 2, 1, and 3, of your sin. And the more you see your sin, uh, and, the more you, and the more conviction you come under, the more you can confess, which means to say the same thing God says, instead of rationalizing, blame-shifting, excuse-making, minimizing, oh, it ain't that bad. Oh, yeah. It, it's, it's actually a lot worse than you think. You know, my... Pastor Ray Nethery likes to uh, give that uh, nice, kindly 87-year-old smile. And, uh, and he goes, cheer up. You're much worse than you think. <laughs> and uh, the truth is, we are much worse than we think. And um, Isaiah 59 talks about how sin has made a separation between us and our God. Actually, no one can come to God unless... Uh, no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. And he actually draws you. Uh, one of the first things he does in drawing you is begin to give you conviction of sin. And grant you the grace to confess it instead of blame, shift, excuse, make, rationalize, and 
but, 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 that's the difference between the sheep and the goats. The goats are always saying, but, 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 and the sheep say, ah, but. All right, so, stupid old joke. All right, hopefully we know that sin and sins are different. Sin is what we're dealing with here. Your sins are too many to deal with here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we don't have time for that. But your, your sins come out of your sin, which is your, the, the, a power. It's beyond having like a sin nature. Sin is actually a power in the universe. And it's a power that you're totally captured by until Christ releases you in the new birth and conversion. So, hopefully you understand. Uh, the Bible also uses the word transgression, which is more about sins, and iniquity, which is more about sin. Now, the word iniquity in the New American Standard only appears two times in the, in the uh, New American Standard English version. But if you look at the Greek word for it, it appears 24 times in the New Testament. And it has to do with um, kind of legal being ungodly, unrighteous, unjust toward everything. All right, so let's get into the doctrine that was developed by Luther. Calvin is probably the most famous uh, person who uh, postulated this doctrine. Uh, Knox, John Knox, if you know who he is, Jonathan Edwards. Uh, I put a little website there that has pretty good uh, coverage of uh, the idea of total depravity. It's also known as total inability or total corruption. Now, there's a couple of things I want to, before we even say this, you need to understand that total depravity is, does not erase the Imago Dei, the, does not erase the fact that, that people were created in the image of God. And so even the most fallen and heinous people, their philosophies, their artwork, their music, their laws, will still somewhat reflect that image of God that we were all created with. It's just that every motive of your heart is twisted. Every action that comes out of your life is twisted. But in such a way that you are not a perfect sinner. But everything you do is sinful. <laughs> but uh, it's not complete perfection in sin because there's still the Imago Dei or the image of God in there. And what God does when he recreates you in Christ is he begins to build the the image of God in you and build you into the person you were meant to be, that you were always created to be before sin caused you to have emotional problems, mental problems, addiction problems, fear problems, anger problems, whatever else you have struggled with. So um, that's important to understand. So let's get into some things about what, what it means to be total depraved. The, the most important thing you need to understand is that fallen man is highly motivated to run from the presence of God. We see this first in Genesis chapter 3, when after Adam and Eve's sin, it says the Lord went to visit them in the cool of the day. The implication is that he did this every day. Um, and they hid themselves from the presence of God, and they tried to cover their shame with fig leaves. So... A lot of what modern psychology is about, modern philosophy, modern uh, sociology, demographics, what you name it, modern views of economics, is man trying to hide from God. 
that's the philosophies that rule the universities today. And um, unfortunately, because of the retreatist mentality that, that evangelicals and fundamentalists uh, embraced in the height of the modernist fundamentalist controversy, we gave over the political sphere, the economic sphere, and especially the academic sphere to the ungodly. And so we need a lot more guys like Dallas Willard, who died a couple of years ago, but was one of the most highly respected. He was a professor of philosophy at, at uh, University of Southern California. He lectured regularly at big institutions like Harvard and so forth. And he was a very dedicated uh, evangelical Christian. And um, we even use one of his books as one of our foundational books. And um, we, you know, we need uh, to quit retreating from culture and engage and get involved and in, in infiltrate culture. So in a lot of ways, even, you know, the Christian school movement, you know, we, we really do advocate Christian schools, but, there, you, but you have to equip, train, prepare your, your you know, kids and so forth to eventually turn around, face the battle, and get involved. You know, that's why I raised my kids to have jobs when they were 14 and 15 and, and to be ready for, for the secular world by the time they were 16, 17, and 18 and to start, start invading to be part of the solution instead of continuing to run from them. You know, we, we get to where kids are so poorly founded that they still need to be in Christian institutions till they're 20, 25, 35, 45. And uh, you do need to be in a community of Christians, and you do need to be deeply in God's word and so forth. But eventually, you've got to be ready to go into battle. And eventually, we can't keep retreating in all the major spheres of human endeavor. So, let's re read these five statements here. A, uh, total depravity means that our sin, we are bound to suppress the truth of God. In other words, we're captivated by it. We're in, in chains and bars. We're innately born to not love or seek God with our whole being. Much of what goes on in modern Christianity, the whole seeker-sensitive movement, is designed to sort of placate man's fallen nature so that we don't have to tell them too many of the real truths because they're not going to be popular with their sin. But that really doesn't strike the axe to the root of the tree, as John the Baptist said. John the Baptist didn't have a soft-sell, seeker-sensitive message. He you know, had you know, his most famous mess, CD message was called, You Brood of Vipers. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, what a great man. Like, You Brood of Vipers. <laughs> you know, let's go speak at right state and start with, You Brood of Vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? All right. So, um, men need to see that they're running from God. And a lot of what our churches are about is a lot of people try to do the minimum amount they can in the things of God to have God not bother them much. And so some people who go to church simply go to church to kind of get their churching up and their religious activity done or whatever, but they're not, their whole life isn't about a passionate love for God. And again, I would submit that it'd be, if your life's not all about a passionate love for God, you've got real problems at the foundation of, your, of who you are. 
and you don't yet see sin. Because when you see sin, you'll see grace. According to the idea of total depravity, we are captive to lawlessness, self-justification, blame-shifting, apathy, rebellion, pride, religion, etc. I remember listening to uh, uh, the guy who was discipling me at the time back in Bowling Green in the early 70s. And uh, my wife remembers this story that uh, this uh, family had some problems. There, there were two, a brother and a sister in our church who really were loving God. And their little brother was having some problems, so the mom set the little brother out there. And their cousin was having problems, so the aunts and uncles sent the, the cousin to not live in New York City and New Jersey and that, or Connecticut and all that anymore. And he had that whole New York, New Jersey way, accent. And he came out, and uh, the pastor was saying to him, Billy, your problem is you're a no-do. And, and he very confidently looked at the pastor and said, I know. <laughs> and uh, your sin will make you a know-it-all. And what's amazing to me is they're constant. like if you want, follow any kind of social media, TV, anything today, like everyone is always taking up opinion polls and people actually kind of think like what the majority of people think matters. Really, in an uneducated, lost, broken culture that is falling apart at the seams, it, do we really care what the majority opinion is? That's actually a, a fallacy in, in logic. The appeal to the majority is, is considered a fallacy. Do you know that in 1850, the majority of enlightened Supreme Court justices, by, by the way, don't, don't miss the fact that the Supreme Court justices, justices wear robes because they see themselves as the, the priest of the law. That's deep in Western tradition. Okay, when, you know, when someone was healed, Jesus would send them to the priest, right? And the priests were the adjudicators of the law and the interpreters of the law, right? And there's a reason why the courts wear robes. It's a very religious institution, and they see themselves as the high priest, uh, uh, like Aaron, interpreting the law of God to the people, like Ezra did. Ezra 7.10, that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to practice it, and to teach it in Israel. That's, they have become, the Supreme Court, it, you know, interestingly, in our, if you read the Constitution, the, the Constitution describes in great detail the powers of the Congress that they intended to be the most powerful institution, and it's the least powerful of the three major branches of government today. Then they plan for a, a little bit of a role for the president, which has become very powerful. But the most powerful institution today is the Supreme Court, and the Constitution did not even allow for them to have their own separate building. They, and it doesn't give them very many lines, because they never intended the Supreme Court to be these know-it-all pontificators of what reality and truth is. You know, the, the, the enlightened Supreme Court justices in 1850 in the Dred Scott decision said that black people are three-fifths of a person. Do we really care what the majority of people think? In Roe v. v. Wade, they said that a woman's right to privacy gave her the right to kill her unborn child in the womb. Do we really care what they think? 
Sin will captivate people to lawlessness, blame-shifting, pride, know-it-all spirit, self-justification, and so forth. I'm amazed at how dogmatically pontificating some of the most deceived, corrupt, foolish people that I know that when they post on Facebook and whatever, how they post as if they really are the enlightened, I'm the you know, answer to your stupidity. Our sin nature makes us blind by virtue of being spiritually dead. Dead people don't see that well. In fact, I've been going to the eye doctors and wearing glasses since I was in fourth grade, and I've often had to sit in the waiting room and wait for my appointment because someone else is ahead of me. But never has any of them been dead. Because all the eye doctors I've ever worked with don't take appointments to, to, to prescribe glasses to dead people. Which is about what modern psychology is. Trying to give glasses to dead people so they can see better. But dead people can't see better. You don't need some self-help books and to live your best life now. You need to become a radically new person with radically new motives and radically new agenda that has been captured by the Lion of Judah and is all centered in him and knowing and pleasing him and serving him. Now, the sin nature is corrupt in every part of our being. It's unable to choose or love or serve God or to help in that choice. There's actually a big controversy in church history that's, that we'll study in the church history class that started with, with what's called Augustine versus Pelagius, or Augustinianism versus Pelagianism. And Pelagius saw man is able to help in his salvation by his own works. And he didn't see man as innately fallen. And of course the church made it clear that Pelagius was a heretic. Then in the Reformation, the same idea was rebirthed by a guy named James Arminius, and it's called uh, Arminianism. And that's what is meant whenever you go by a church and you see free will Baptist church or free will evangelical church or whatever. They're saying man is basically good and he can choose whether to follow the gospel or not by his own power. And the scriptures make it very clear that man is not basically good and you can't even want to hear God unless he grants that to you. Because you're dead. If Jesus had not said, Lazarus, come forth, Lazarus wasn't in the grave thinking, ah, oh, I hear Jesus out there. <laughs> you know, he's, I, I can hear him. I'm going to choose to cooperate and get up. No, he was dead. He couldn't see anything. He couldn't hear anything. He was totally bound up with grave cloths. And he was helpless. And Lazarus is a great picture of who we are before Christ releases us from our sin. We are corrupt in every part of our nature and every part of our being, but not perfectly. Now, some scriptures that go along with that are listed here. I wish I could read Paul's whole argument in Romans 3, but we'll have to settle for some things that back up what I've been saying. As it is written, there is none... You know, don't, you've got to get into a habit. When you read all, everyone, 
whoever, if anyone, stop and think about that and ask God to, to chase down any motivation of your spirit and heart that thinks you're an exception to that anyone. Because that's the essence of our sin nature. The, you know, the, that's why the Pharisees, when the blind man who Jesus healed, uh, speaking of, you know, that's why God waited. No prophet of the Old Testament ever healed a man born blind. Jesus is the first one because God is making a clear story there that, you know, that was historically accurate, but there's a story in it. And the story, the narrative, is that only Jesus can heal someone born blind, which is all of us. And the Pharisees basically claimed they weren't. They say, you were born entirely in sin, and you're teaching us. What are they implying? That we aren't. Just like the Pharisee and, and, and the Pharisee and the publican who said, you know, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. If there's one iota of I'm not like other men, I'm not as bad as that guy. If that's still in your heart, you've yet to make progress in the gospel. If you, if you, uh, you know, there should be one argument that happens on Sunday mornings. Sometimes there's theological arguments and debates that goes on downstairs. But the one that should happen is, who's the worst sinner? And you should be drinking the case that you're the worst sinner. <laughs> uh, don't punch anybody. <laughs> don't get too heated about it. But I hope you can, could argue that you're the worst sinner with deep conviction. And really mean it. Because, you know, we grow up in this middle class culture and we have all these things provided for us and we don't have to get jobs early in life and we don't have to grow up and we can be lazy and, and we can be lacking achievement and applying ourselves. We can have all kind of crap going on, but it can masquerade as I'm not that bad of a person. And the problem with the, the sin is sin is entirely deceitful. And God has given us his word, primarily his law and his statutes, that is the, the, the hypothetical case laws, and he's given us his spirit to help us be rescued from being that blind. And it's, it's amazing to me because I, as a pastor, I really cry over and I cry out over and I pray over the people who aren't growing much and, and versus the people who are growing, and it always gets down to that. The people who are growing see themselves as sinners, foundationally, fundamentally, totally, and completely. Always. And the people who aren't growing always have criticism toward others, judgment, and so forth that comes out of a root of that the self-righteousness is still alive and well in the depth of their being. You look at anyone that has problems, and there will be some element of not seeing how totally depraved they are. There is none righteous. No, there is none who understands. There is none, I, should, I missed one, who seeks for God. All, that deep word that this, John Luke's getting this, because Tuesday he, uh, when I said all, he goes, yeah, that's pos, right? Means, you know, all means all. We sometimes think somehow we're the exception to all. 
all have turned aside. Together they've become useless. Have you ever looked in the mirror and said, I am useless <laughs> apart from Christ? <laughs> That's a good thing to do in the morning. I am useless apart from Christ. Well, what a waste. <laughs> Your life is a waste apart from God. That, you know, John Piper has a sermon about serving God when you're young called Don't Waste Your Life. If you're not totally on fire for God, you're wasting your existence. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, etc., etc. I wish I had more time to develop that. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 tells about how we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And, how, and then he lists the three enemies of the faith which is the world, the flesh, and the devil. They're clearly in verses 2 and 3. And indulging in the flesh and the mind. And this, But we miss this point. By nature. In other words, your sin is a matter of your nature. You are by nature a runner from God. And our churches are filled today with people who basically have not been able to shake God, so they do just the minimum amount they can to try to quiet their conscience so that they don't have to be totally radical for God. The 90-some percent of Christians in America are living right there. And they think they're not that bad. No, it is that bad. You were dead. That's pretty bad. You know, I remember when I was in the intensive care ward struggling for my life and they couldn't get my oxygen level up to 90% or so forth and everything. Let me tell you, um, I was doing a lot better than my brother who was dead. <laughs> I was. Now, I was concerned, you know, <laughs> you know, I was a little scared, and so forth. I was, I was praying more seriously than usual, <laughs> and uh, uh, I guess we all have a tendency to do that, right? And, uh, but I was doing a lot better than the dead people. They weren't praying more intensely than usual, and they weren't concerned, And their oxygen level was well below 90%. Second <laughs> Timothy 2, if, God, if perhaps God may grant, I should underline that word, then the repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been detained a little bit or just blocked sort of a little bit, like in, in football, how you just try to get in front of the guy long enough till the runner gets by and... The, no, no, you were held captive. You were pinned. It was like in wrestling, you know, at the end of the mat, when you get pinned, they go like that. It was like if the guy decided after the, the guy goes like that, he's just going to hold you down some more. And then the guy goes, and the guy goes, hey, he's pinned. You know, it's over. I don't care. I'm not letting him up. That was, is our spiritual condition outside of Christ. We are held captive to do Satan's will. A lot of religious people are held captive. There are lots of pastors held captive to do the will of Satan. 
Genesis 6, 5, then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was just a little bit of a problem in the earth and that some intents of the thoughts of his heart were only evil once in a while. Oh, wait, that's the modern translation. You can get that one at a seeker-sensitive church. No one, that means no one can, which means... You know, hopefully you teach your kids when they're young the difference between may I go to the bathroom or can I go to the bathroom. I used to do the Sunday school before Nathan and Stephen took it over, and that was one of my favorite points because the kids would always go, can I go to the bathroom? And I'd always go, I don't know if you can, and I don't really want to get involved in finding out. (laughs) I'm assuming you probably can because you're still alive and you're still here, but we prefer you do it in the restroom and you may go there. (laughs) You know, like it's important when you read the word to know what they mean, right? You can, means you are not able. You'd have more chance of jumping off the Empire State Building and running down or flying down or whatever than that you could actually come to Christ. No one can come lest the Father draws him. I'm amazed how many Christian parents um, get into raising their kids and they're more concerned about their kids' outward behaviors than they are about whether they've been radically converted by being deeply convicted of sin and being in a process where God has drawn them to himself. And one of the reasons you've got to learn how, you know, modern parents, especially evangelicals, don't let their kids grow up and individuate. Well, the reason I get them out getting jobs early and they're required to get good grades and they can't have much freedom to go to movies or anything until their grades are good and, and so forth and until they're walking with God. They, they need to be set free to become who they're supposed to be. I can't be primarily concerned about their outward behaviors. I have to be con- primarily concerned about their inner spiritual condition. I, You know, one of my daughters... Uh, got baptized in water and baptized in the Holy Spirit. Actually, several of my kids got baptized in the Holy Spirit when we weren't there. Because they went to other Christians and said, I can't wait to get baptized in the Holy Spirit. My dad hasn't told me about it yet. Tell me about it. And the next thing I knew, they were baptized in the Holy Spirit and telling me about it. That's okay. That's great. I'm always amazed at at kids that are... 12, 13, 14, who know the baptism in the Spirit from God, but they've never done anything about it. Why? It's not your parents' God, it's your God. No one can come unless the Father who sent me draws him. If God is drawing you, he will give you the grace to turn around. 1 Corinthians 2, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. You can only understand the things of God by the Holy Spirit. That's why if your kid starts growing up in the Lord in such a way that they have more insights in the things of God than you do, great! What the heck were you praying for all your life? Because you can't give that to him. Only God can give them to you. And, and thank God that he answered that prayer. All right, so the, the essence of total depravity, because I've got to get off of this and hopefully finish up 
it, we really need to see you're unable to do anything toward God except he grants it to you by his grace. So the gifts are free, and they do require uh, unwrapping, and they do require some assembly, but even that is granted to you by the grace of God. You wouldn't want to unwrap it. You wouldn't even want to come to the Christmas dinner. You would be so blind as if you knew there were 500 gifts under the tree for you, you still wouldn't have time for the Christmas dinner. You wouldn't come to the banqueting table because you can't understand what a great banquet it is, nor do you have the power to, to turn toward him. His grace grants you all of that. And that's why, you know, we exhort to seek the Lord and be zealous and so forth, but always go back to grace. Lord, I, I, I'm not that much of a, if you're not that much of a seeker of God, start by confessing that. Because if you could confess it, that's the grace of God working in you already. <laughs> if you can even begin to see that you're lukewarm, that you're not hot, that you're, that you're not on fire, that you don't know much, then that's the grace of God helping you already. And he already is drawing you because you can see that. That was probably one of the best insights I ever had right in the middle of sharing the gospel. I was having breakfast with John Bradbury when he was first considering the things of God. And remember this at our house, I was making in the kitchen making you toast and different things, and you go, I just need to see a miracle. And, I'm th and all of a sudden the Lord hit me with, I've already shown him a miracle. The miracle I've shown him is the things he's reading about God and human nature in the Bible are actually true. And he's not known them nor acknowledged them or been a, and he couldn't see the truth of them unless I was miraculously giving them. He was already starting to become deeply concerned about what a sinner he was. And that's the beginning of God drawing you. You, couldn't, you wouldn't care about being a sinner. Like when you see really good movies that do a good job of portraying wicked guys, wicked guys delight in their wickedness, right? They like it. The reason you sin, you like it. So the grace of God. Now, let's try to cover this sin nature thing. Sin nature is sometimes called the Adamic nature or the fallen nature. Um, there's two things you just need to understand. When the Bible, the writers of the New Testament are all Hebrew guys writing with the Greek language except for Luke. So when they use, there's two words, soma for body and sarx for body, and sarx is normally translated flesh. And often when they use the sin nature word, they use the word sarx. This in modern times has led to this dualistic Christianity we have because they don't mean something like Neoplatonism what's called dualism or Gnosticism, that spiritual things are good and your sin problem is all your bodily desires. Because your sin problem is, is spiritual and intellectual and emotional and your body. And all of it is not submitted to God and all of it is doing its own thing and all of it is running from God and all of it has its own private religion and all of it wants to come to God and, and be a great Christian but you don't want to be disciple or under authority or accountable to a team all everyone is still running from god and to whatever degree you've begun to seek god it's because and if you begin to see that i need to seek him in his word by his spirit and by being under the authority of a local church and i really need to get opened up and get discipled that all of that's been granted to you by the grace of god 
So when the Bible talks about the flesh, it doesn't just mean your bodily desires and your, the fact that your desires for sex, sleep, uh, alcohol, food are out of control. That's part of it, but your emotions are out of control. Your mind is out of control. Your thought system is in rebellion to God. And your spirit loves evil spirits apart from God. You know, I, when I was lost, my favorite band was a band called Uriah Heep, and my favorite album was called Demons and Wizards. And I was so blind, I didn't see any problem with that. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, fallen men love demons. And any kind of magic and fantasy worlds and the, and the desire to control and so forth. So, uh, unfortunately, like the doctrine of original sin that we talked about last week, so many people who talk about sin nature in our culture have turned it into just some shallow things about whether you drink beer. And I, the, the average evangelical Christian, this is, like, this is like the number one thing we're up against at Cedarville. Uh, you talk to these Christians who basically think, I'm basically a really good Christian. I've never killed anybody. I'm not a thief. Oh, yes, you are. <laughs> You've been covetous in your heart, and you've been lazy with God's gifts, and you're not a unfire seeker of him. You're a deeper sinner than you could possibly know. And when you begin to see that, you'll be set free. That is so important. Um, so down here where I have that point, and point C all the way down, reduced by both dualistic neo-Gnosticism and antinomian legalism. Hopefully we know what that means by now. I can't develop it now because I'm past my time. But it just we make all sorts of rules. Uh, and we think that like being a Christian is about smoking and drinking beer and whether you eat fattening foods or, you know, we, and whatever, haircuts and dresses and makeup and all kind of all crud that we get, uh, you know, whether your room is clean, you know, that's a real issue of righteousness. Uh, <laughs> You know, and all this stuff, we, that, but we ignore like selfish ambition and pride and self-righteousness and running from God and all the real issues of life. Covetousness, lust, greed. So, you know, this whole sin nature thing is twisted in our modern times and it's made into something that's not all that bad. You know, it's people actually like, it's like I have my little pet in nature on my leash. And, you know, I try to not let him get too out of control and stuff. But I take him with me wherever I go because I really like him. He's cute and fuzzy and stuff. <laughs> you know? I mean, that's kind of how, like, the modern Christianity is. And so when we pray the sinner's prayer, we kind of mean like, yeah, I've made a few mistakes. Maybe. Yeah, I guess there was that time in 77 when I. You know, <laughs> you know, we really don't get it. Hopefully, we're starting to understand sin. Now, I wish I could develop this last point, but I really want to go on to another subject next week. Galatians 6, 1 through 3. If you can live that, then you've begun to grow in grace. If you can, when anyone's caught in any trespass, 
restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness because you see yourself as just as bad and worse. That's when you've begun to understand sin for what sin really is. And that will enable you to, keep, to quit deceiving yourselves and having an attitude that I have no sin, I am a pretty good Christian. And I heard the gospel when I was 14, and I got zealous for God, and, and I'm so much more godly than other Christians, except there's this whole list of things that you haven't obeyed God in. And your sin, if you did more uh, focusing on your sin and less focusing on justifying yourself in front of men, because in front of other men, and that fear of man's a big sin to begin with, then God could really set you free. And you could actually begin to become mature in the things of God. But you will never be mature, and you will never be fruitful unless you really see this sin thing for the problem that it is. Amen.